0: But well, we have got an amazing passage of Scripture to take a look at this morning, so I want, I want to just get going right away here. There are a couple of things, though, that we've got to keep in mind if we are going to rightly understand what it is that we're going to be reading in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So you've got your Bible open up to Ezekiel 38 and 39. But as you do so, I want to remind you of the context. Because if you don't remember the context of what, is, of what is going on here, you're not going to understand what it is that Ezekiel is saying, what this is all about. You got to remember that the prophet Ezekiel is speaking to his fellow captives. Remember the Jews, they've been conquered by Babylon. They've been taken away as prisoners of war and settled in, in a far-off country as slaves. Their nation has been defeated. Their temple has been destroyed. And yet, in the midst of all of that, even though God has been judging them through this because of their sin, God has been judging the nation because of their sin, and yet, in the midst of that, what oh, we saw a couple of weeks ago in, in chapter 36... That even though God was judging them, he wasn't done with them. He wasn't discarding them. He wasn't rejecting them. In fact, in in chapter 36, God made some amazing promises to his people. Even in the midst of them suffering the consequences of their sin, God tells his people, listen, I'm going to do an amazing work in you. I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to do some things that you can't even imagine. In fact, that was beyond what they could imagine. And that just makes sense, doesn't it? Here they are. They're captives in a foreign country. They're completely defeated. The whole world around them is telling you, listen, God is done with you. God has rejected you. That's why you've lost. And yet God says, I'm not. And I still love you. And I am still for you. And I am still going to bless you. But that promise was so, so crazy that they had a hard time absorbing it. And so God gave them chapter 37. Remember last week, chapter 37. And God basically says this. You are so bad off right now that you are basically just a pile of old bones. You're as good as a pile of old bones. But you know what? I'm going to breathe life into you. I'm going to breathe life into you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. I am not done with you. You may, you may look at your circumstances. You may look at your situation. And you may think it's over. It's done. There's no hope. There's no way. But God. But God has made a promise to his people. And he's going to keep it. He's going to keep it. Now, here's the thing. When we get to chapters 38 and 39 this morning... Now the Lord is telling them, not only am I going to redeem you, not only am I going to bring you back in the land, but there's going to come a day. There's going to come a day when I'm going to rescue you again and I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight your battles again. And I'm going to destroy your enemies. Now as we take a look at these two chapters... Um, As far as I look at them, I I see really four divisions within those two chapters. We take the first 15 verses, and what that's really about is God setting the scene. God sets the scene. He tells us who, and he tells us what, and when, and where, and why. And we get a picture of what it is that's going on that God is talking to them about in this this far-off prophecy about the end times. And then in verse 16, we get this little snippet, this little preview trailer of what it's all about what the purpose is but then in in verse 17 through chapter 39 verse 6 God begins to describe the action we've seen the scene but now here's the action here's what God does and and understand this the action isn't what Israel does the action is what God does okay and that's how it works with us too isn't it it, the scene is set, the circumstances are, are what they are, the action that takes place, the good that happens, that's what God does. It's when God intervenes. And so here in those verses, it talks about what God is going to do. And then in verses seven and eight, we get another preview trailer. Another little snippet just to make sure we keep it in mind of what it's all about, of what the purpose of it all is. And then in verses 9 through 20, we get the result, really the response of Israel. God has taken action. Now what is Israel going to do in response to that? What, what is their part in all of this? How do things end up? How do they turn out? And then in verses 21 through 29, the, the very end of chapter 39, We come back to it again. We've had the two preview trailers. Now we're ready for the whole thing the purpose. Why in the world is God doing all of this? What is this all about? And God lays it all in front of us. Now, I have to tell you this this passage, these two chapters, it's a confusing chunk of scripture. Uh, Partly because it's prophecy. And one of the dynamics of prophecy is we're talking about stuff that hasn't happened yet. And so there's a a certain layer of obscurity. Uh, There's an undefinedness about much of what we're going to be reading. And so we need to do this. In the midst of talking about these things, we need to keep very clear the difference between what is declared and what we can deduce and what is just dreamed up, okay? Those are three distinctions that we've got to kind of filter through in each thing that we look at. Where are we at with this? Is this something that Scripture is declaring? Is this something that it just says that this is going to happen? Or is this something that we're deducing? We look at this and we look at that, and we can deduce from what Scripture says that this is what it's about. Or, is this just something we've dreamed up? Now, when I say that, I don't mean that it's wrong. Maybe the things that we dream up, the things that we look at and go, wow, I wonder if this fits in there. I wonder if it's talking about that. Those are things that, that we look we, and we, we just go, wow, I wonder if this is how it is. But what we have to remember is that isn't what God's word is declaring And it isn't even what we deduce from God's word. It's what we've dreamed up that might match it. And here's why I think that's important. We come up with all these great ideas about what all these prophecies are about. But if they don't play out the way that maybe we've dreamed them out, then we get discouraged. What we've got to remember is what it declares, what God's word says is very clear. What we can deduce from what it says is very reasonable. And then we need to hold very loosely those things that we dream up. Well, we also need to keep a very clear uh, mind about what event it is that we're talking about. Okay, so 38 and 39, Ezekiel 38 and 39 speak about a singular prophetic event. Something that is yet to come in the future, but it's a singular event and it's a specific event but it's an event that often gets confused or conflated. You know that word conflate? That's when you take a couple of things and kind of mill them together. You take several distinct things and you kind of blend them together in, into a bit of a confused mess. People often confuse or conflate the battle of Gog from Magog. And I want to say that very specifically. What we're talking about in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is Gog from Magog. You often hear people talk about Gog and Magog. That's not here. That's not Ezekiel. It's Gog who is the guy who came from the place called Magog, which probably just means the land of Gog, okay? So what we're looking at is this battle that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It is often confused with what we read about in Revelation 19, There in verses 17 through 21, we read about the battle. It's not really a battle, but we call it the battle of Armageddon. It's that thing that takes place when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation. Or sometimes we confuse both of those things with what I will call the last battle. It's a battle that's described in Revelation 20, okay? Now, if you're not confused already, wait, I'm just getting started. Okay, here's some of the things that are similar but yet distinctly different about these. When we're talking about the Battle of Gog from Magog, there are no clear historical markers. There's nothing that tells us it happens at this point in history. There are some things we can deduce, but there's nothing that tells tells us when it happens. Oh, but the Battle of Armageddon, that happens at the conclusion of the Tribulation. It happens when Christ returns, when Christ comes in the heavens. He comes in the sky with his holy angels, with you and I coming with him. When he comes back to earth to rule and reign, that's when that happens. And the last battle, well, that's, that one's kind of easy. It's last, right? It's after, it's after the end of what we call the millennial reign of Christ. So after Christ returns with Armageddon, he rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, people are such knuckleheads, It's unbelievable. After a thousand years of Christ ruling, mankind rebels. (laughs) Go figure. It's just like it's, it's who we are in so many ways. So that takes place at the end of the millennium. Well, how about this? The Battle of Gog, it's about this guy, Gog, from the land of Magog, who is a leader and who leads others against Israel. Well, but in the... Battle of Armageddon, Gog and Magog don't even come into it. They're not even mentioned. And and then Gog and Magog, the word and there is mentioned in Revelation 20 when it's talking about the last battle. And, And when John writes Gog and Magog, it's a rephrasing. It's another way of saying the nations. What he's talking about is all of the world coming against the Messiah, coming against the one who has ruled and reigned over the earth for those thousand years. With the battle of Gog, here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the people are led by Gog from Magog to attack Israel. Uh, The battle of Armageddon, it's the kings of the earth trying to fight against the, the, the return of Christ. And the last battle, as I said, it's the nations of the world rebelling against the Messiah, and they attack the saints in Jerusalem and find that they've picked a fight with God himself. Uh, In Ezekiel 38 and 39, the battle of Gog from Magog, those who are defeated, this is a little gruesome, they're devoured by birds and by wild animals. And then the battle of Armageddon, The, the people that are defeated there, they're devoured by birds. But there at the last battle, the people who are Defeated there are consumed by fire from heaven. So you can see each one of these battles, it has some different distinctives about it. They're not the same thing. They're not just one thing described in various ways, but there are three very distinct things. And the one that we're talking about this morning is found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's the battle of Gog from Magog. Let's begin to dig in. The first section is, The scene gets set, the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, the how. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face towards Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you. O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. And I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth to Gorma, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. So, of course, the first question is, who in the world are all these people? Who in the world are all these people? They, they are certainly not the usual enemies of Israel. Did you notice that? Edom isn't mentioned. There's no Moab. The Philistines are nowhere to be found. Egypt isn't on the list. None of the nations that border Israel are included in this group of nations that have come against Israel. Instead, we have a whole new caste. Uh, we've got Gog, okay? And we don't really know who Gog is, uh, but we do know he's from the land of Magog, which probably just means the land of Gog, okay? So he's from the place that's named after him. That's not real helpful. Um, we know that he is the the chief prince. He's the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And, and those were places that we know were to the north of Israel, somewhere near the Black Sea, probably. Now, it, it is possible but I'll be honest with you, it's very unlikely that the Hebrew word rosh that here is translated as chief in that sentence, the chief prince, it's possible that the word rosh here in this setting should be a proper name, not an adjective. And so it would read that he is the prince of rosh, of Meshach, and of Tubal. But even if that is supposed to be a proper name and not an adjective, though most Hebrew scholars would say that that's not the case, just because the word Rosh sounds like the word Russia, kind of, that doesn't mean it's Russia, okay? It's unbelievable. So many people will say, oh, you know, Rosh. Of course, we all know that's Russia. But really, we don't know that. Uh, We don't know that from the word rosh, the word that just means chief. Maybe it is Russia, but that would be kind of like saying whenever the Bible says Canaanite, what it means is Canadian. (laughs) You know, you always wonder about those folks up north, didn't you? Yeah, now you know. Now Gog might be Russia, but not because rosh sounds like Russia. In, In verse 15, we see, that Gog comes out of the uttermost parts of the north to the far north of Israel. Well, that's that's the area of Russia. And in verses 1 through 9, we see that Gog has alliances with all of these nations. And this is interesting. Nations that today Russia has or is building very strong alliances with. So who are these nations? Well, uh, answering that question is not a simple thing. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about it, a good amount of uh, disagreement. Here's the deal. Uh, what Scripture is listing are, na- are, are not nationalities, but ethnicities, people groups. And but what we talk about today are nationalities. And the borders have shifted. And so there, there's a little bit of wiggle room here, but it is, it is pretty much accepted that Meshek and Tubal, that those are near or in modern Turkey. It's very universally accepted that Persia is modern-day Iran. I mean, that name change only took ni- took place 90 years ago. Cush um, uh, would likely be parts of Sudan, Ethiopia, and Somalia. So now Israel is surrounded. And Put would be in Libya. Gomer and Beth Tagorm- Tagarma. Uh, they are thought to be in, in modern Turkey as well, or maybe a bit to the east, those areas that those of us who can't pronounce the names of the actual countries called the region of the stands. You know, the <laughs> Afukistan and Trukistan and, and the other stands as well. That if I was more educated, I could, I could respectfully tell you their names. Um, now, it's interesting, but here I want you to take a note. I want you to realize we've crossed a line, haven't we? We've gone from what it's declaring to what we can deduce, and we're crossing over into what we can kind of see might fit, what we dream up. But we see that Russia has or is very actively seeking alliances with all of these nations with all of these nations. So I think it's reasonable for us to look at and say, you know what, that, that might be it. It might be Russia taking that place as Gog and, and, and gathering these nations into alliances, that, that it might be Russia that leads an attack at some point against Israel. Well, verse 7, um, the Lord says, Be ready and keep ready. Well, why do they need to keep ready? Because it isn't gonna happen anytime soon. He says, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you and be a guard for them after many days you will be mustered in the latter years. In the latter years. Here the Lord uses this phrase that that talks about the end times. Uh, This phrase that points us to the end times. It's not something that's gonna take place in Ezekiel's day, but this is something that is going to take place toward the end of time with you, verse 8. You will go against the land that is restored from war. The land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. So in the last days, when the land of Israel has been restored after a war and when the people of Israel have been regathered from all around... By the way, I don't know if you know this, that describes Israel today. That describes Israel today in our day. Hey, Israel is peopled by Jews who have come there from all around the globe. They've been regathered to their nation and they came to a land that was desolate, that was considered a wasteland and they have turned it into a garden Uh, irrigation and farming. You know, Israel has become one of the major exporters of fruits and vegetables and flowers. They grow everything there. Verse nine, you will advance. God speaking to Gog and to his hordes, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. You and all your hordes and many peoples with you. In other words, they're going to come in overwhelming numbers. And thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates to seize spoil and carry off plunder. To turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. So, Gog will see Israel as a rich and easy to conquer land. In that day, unlike today, if you've been to Israel or watched the news, Israel will be an unwalled land with no bars or gates. That's not how it is today there. I I don't know if you know that or not. They're very conscious of security there in Israel. Uh, They may live without fear today, but they live without fear because they're armed to the teeth. Because they have a very secure land. But in this day, in this day, it says that they will live without any fear, without walls or bars or gates you might wonder, how would that come about? Now, we don't know. It it doesn't say, so again, we're crossing that line, aren't we? We're crossing that line from what is declared. We know that this is how it will be, but it doesn't tell us how it's going to get there. Well, we can infer a little bit. Things are going to change. We go beyond that. Now we're into the territory of dreaming up. Well, I think it's interesting that there's no Egypt, there's no Syria, there's no Jordan, no Edom, Moab, no Philistines that are listed amongst these nations that are coming against Israel. And it makes me wonder if these countries that border, that touch upon Israel's border, if maybe Israel has found peace with them. Maybe peace through some sort of treaty, or I think more likely in this case, peace through a victory over her neighbors. It could be it could be that passages like Psalm 83 that, that speak of Israel having a major victory over her, her closest neighbors. Then maybe it speaks of this time. That maybe very soon in history, Israel is going to have victory over those who are so troublesome to them now. You want to really get into conjecture? Maybe it's because the rapture is going to take place. And when the rapture takes place, everything is going to go nuts. Not because they miss us. Maybe because they throw a really big party and it gets out of hand. I don't know. But but things are going to change. And there's going to be new dynamics. But here what we see is that in this day, a day is going to come when Israel is going to be safe and secure without walls, without gates, or without bars. They're going to appear unprotected. And Gog is going to see that. And he's going to see the prosperity. And he's going to want to take it for himself. Verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? So Sheba and Dedan are in the region of modern Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Well, Tarshish, though unknown, we don't really know where Tarshish was, it is thought that probably it was in the the region of Spain or a little place called the island of Sardinia. Did you know there was such a place? A little place called the island of Sardinia. Now, some have argued that Tarshish is actually modern England. Um, There's really no basis for that. It's very unlikely but here's the deal. We don't know where Tarshish was. Could it be? Sure. It could be anywhere. We don't know exactly what it is. These nations, though, Tarshish and, and Sheba and Dedan, they are, going to, they are going to question Gog. Are they objecting to what he's doing? Well, it doesn't really seem like they're objecting. It more sounds like they're looking for a piece of the action. That they're wondering what, what it is that Gog is about. And they're looking for a way to gain some of the profit for themselves. Well, verse 14 goes on. It says, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So the Lord is going to draw together this this new alliance of enemies who who surround and come against Israel there in the last days. And they're going to attack And they're going to be led by this character, Gog, out of the far north. And the Lord is going to use them. And here's the first preview trailer. Here's the purpose. Here's why God is doing all this. God is going to use them to display his holiness, his power, and his faithfulness. God is going to use them to reveal himself to us. Well, let's begin to take a look at the action and what it is that that God does Uh, when Gog comes against the people and when he comes against Israel. There in chapter 38, beginning in verse 17, uh, it says, "'Thus says the Lord God, "'Are you he of whom I spoke in former days "'by my servants, the prophets of Israel?' who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. Now, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is is supposed to be in the affirmative. Um, Yes, that is what it is. In other words, God knew this was happening. Now, what, what prophecies is he talking about? There's no real consensus. There are a lot of very general prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, in Joel, in Zephaniah that talk about God coming to protect his people. God winning a victory over the enemies of his people. But the thing that is key here, the thing that we need to know is God isn't surprised by this. You ever get surprised by stuff? I mean, you finally think things are gonna go right and then wham, you just get sideswiped. It's like one of those YouTube videos. You see of the mountain biker going along the trail and then the deer takes him out from the side. He's just gone, just gone. Just completely wiped out. Does your life feel like that at times? You're just trucking along and you're thinking about 50 yards down the road when all of a sudden something hits you from the side and it's over. It's just done. And you think, where did that come from? Understand this, God never says that. God never says, what just happened? God never says, where did that come from? God says, listen, I've been telling people about you for eons, okay? (sighs) I'm not surprised. I'm not thrown off by this, the Lord says. Uh, Verse 18, but on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you, Gog, the Lord says. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the whole earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. And I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him, that is with Gog. And I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones and fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness And make myself known in the eyes of many nations, then they will know that I am the Lord. So God will supernaturally defeat those who attack Israel, this great horde. God Himself will wipe them out. God will show Himself faithful to Israel. He will show Himself righteous in judgment. He will reveal Himself to be great in power. And to be one who keeps his promises to his people. Now think about it for a moment. Remember who Ezekiel is writing to. Remember who Ezekiel is speaking to. People whose nation has been conquered. Whose temple has been destroyed. Whose lives have been upended. They sit as slaves in a foreign land, defeated. And Ezekiel says, don't worry. God's not done. He will be faithful. He will show himself to be faithful to you. He will show himself to be powerful enough for the situation. He will show himself righteous in judgment. He will show himself to be unstoppable. God will do what it is that he said he will do. And isn't that a good thing for us to know? Because not only will God keep his promises to Israel, he's going to keep his promises to you. He's going to keep his promises to you. He's told you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever you're going through, whatever path you're walking down, you are not alone in this. Because we have a faithful God who has promised to walk with you through it. Chapter 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and I will make your arrows drop from your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel. And you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you, I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So, so God says, listen, I'm bringing you up here because I'm going to display my glory through you. He lays it all out for him again. and Then he says this, I'm going to bring this battle to an end. I'm going to completely wipe you out. I'm going to destroy Gog and his followers, and then I'm going to bring the battle to their home. I'm going to, I'm going to rain down fire upon their land. And now, some people see a reference to the United States in the phrase, the coastlands. Honestly, it's ridiculous. It, it could be true. We don't know where it is, it, but it, it's really not within the context here. It, it, it doesn't Um, have anything that would point us to that. It's probably the coastlands or the Mediterranean. Uh, That would fit the context. That would fit the nations that are mentioned and and the scope that is discussed here. Um, But the thing here that, that the Lord is doing is he's showing us that he's going to take care of Israel. He's going to fight their battles. And then he gives them the second preview. The second preview of his purpose. The second um, little preview trailer of why it is he's doing this. Verse 7, And my holy name I will make known in the midst of the people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of, Of which I have spoken. God is doing all this to reveal Himself, to reveal Himself not only to Israel, but to the whole world. He is going to show them that He is faithful to His people, He is going to show them that He is righteous in His judgment, and that He is unmatched in His power. God acts on the behalf of Israel. And we go on to the next scene. The result how things end up, how it all turns out, chapter 39, verses 9 through 20. It talks about what Israel does in response to the action that God takes. Verse 9, then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forests. For they will make fires of the weapons and they will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. I think there are two things um, that we need to make sure we notice here. First of all, um, all through this prophecy um, Ezekiel records God's descriptions. These aren't just Ezekiel's descriptions of what happens. But it is always the Lord says. This is the word of the Lord. This isn't just Ezekiel saying, well, I don't really understand what I saw, but it was kind of like this. Now, that's the book of Revelation, isn't it? John so often says, and I saw this thing and it was kind of like, it was sort of, I don't really know what I saw, but let me, it was kind of like this. Okay, Or we get that at the beginning of Ezekiel when he's talking about the vision of God's uh, holy throne. But not here. Here we have God saying it's this and it's that, that it's horsemen in armor, that they have bows and they have arrows, they have swords. You see, all throughout this, God describes warfare that is waged in a very ancient way. Um, So we have to make a decision here Uh, how to process that. I mean, is this really going to be a battle that is waged with bows and arrows and swords while riding on horseback? Well, we can either look at this and say God is speaking an analogy to us, but then we have a problem because we don't know where the analogy begins and where it ends. Maybe it's not a battle at all. Maybe Israel isn't real. Maybe none of it, maybe it's all just an analogy. That's a really bad way to read Scripture. Or maybe for reasons that we can't see from here, that we can't comprehend from here, there is a whole change worldwide that goes on. There is a regression that takes place that causes battles to be waged in ways that we can't even imagine today outside of a movie theater. You know, maybe when the rapture takes place, maybe there is such... Uh, warfare and destruction that is triggered around the globe that things functioned very differently after that time. And where here they're waging war with with bows and arrows and swords and so Israel gathers up the wood from all these weapons and it says that they use it for their firewood for 7 years. Now that's interesting, for 7 years. That's interesting because we don't know when this takes place, right? We don't know when it takes place, but we know it's at the end times. And there's different theories about when it takes place, but the fact that after this battle, that they burned the wood from the weapons for seven years. Now think about this. These are Jews in Israel burning this wood. So they've got to be there to do it, Right? But what happens midway through the tribulation? We know that halfway through the tribulation at three and a half years, the Jews get chased out. They get pursued and they have to go and, and, and find a place of hiding. So by my thinking, they can't be there to burn the wood when they've been chased out. That's just deducing. That's just looking at what it says and using a little bit of logic. So that places this battle at least three and a half years before the beginning of the tribulation. Now there are those who will say that no, 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 no. that This happens actually at that point or it happens later. But then you've got this problem with okay, so it says they're burning the wood. How do they do this if they're not there? If it happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, are they burning the weapons the first three and a half years of the of uh, the millennial reign of Christ? I mean, I, I, don't, think, I don't think it's impossible, but that seems kind of weird to me. Um, so I, I, it gives us a hint. I think that we can deduce. It doesn't declare it. We can't hold on to this with a tight fist, but we can look at this and say, we can logically look at what it says, and we can see that this, this needs to take place well before the tribulation begins. which might happen before we're done this morning. I don't know. It it could. Verse 11. On that day I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers for Gog and all his multitude will be buried and will be called the valley of Haman Gog or the valley of Gog's horde. So when God wipes out um, Gog and his, his army. The bones will need to be buried. It's a massive army. It's a, a huge uh, pile of bones that will need to be dis, um, buried. And they get buried in the Jezreel Valley, the valley that, uh, that they call the Valley of the Travelers. It's near Megiddo. If you come to Israel with us, it's something that we'll see is the place where this will take place. Um, and they will fill the valley to a point where it blocks the route from the Mediterranean to the Rift Valley. So it blocks the passage through that valley. Verse 12, for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. You can't have dead bodies. You can't have bones laying around because that that makes the, the land unclean. And the land has got to be clean. And we'll see why next week because God is going to put his temple there. God is going to have his temple there again. It says, all the people of the land will bury them and it will bring them renown on the day when I show my glory, declares the Lord God. And they will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. And at the end of seven months, they will make their search. And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of and Gog. Um, Hamanoah is also the name of the city. It means the multitude or, or the horde, and thus she, they shall cleanse the land. So and, and the reason they set up a marker isn't because they're radioactive as people, you hear the weirdest things. Um, it's because dead bodies are unclean and you're not supposed to touch them if you're a Jew, right? And so it, that's the job of these people. They've got this job to, to cleanse the land. And so after seven months, they get it all taken care of. In verse 17, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field. Now you're going to find out why there's bones that they're bearing and not bodies. Okay, and it's a little gory here. If you didn't like biology dissection, you'll hate this. He says to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, Assemble and come and gather from all around to the sacrificial feast. And I am preparing for you a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. And you shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of he goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat until you are filled and drink blood until you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you and you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers and mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord. And so the Lord calls upon the birds and the beasts of the field to finish his judgment, to eradicate those who chose to come against his people and and to show himself as being unopposable, all-powerful, unstoppable. That is his purpose. That is his purpose. And so we come to the close of the the two chapters, beginning in verse 21. God tells us why is that he does all of this. And he says there in verse 21, and I will set my glory among the nations and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me. And I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries. And they fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions. And I hid my face from them. So in all these things, God is showing himself. He's showing his justice in dealing with sin and his faithfulness toward Israel to keep his promises to them and his power to do what he has declared that he will do. In verse 25, therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all their treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. So God is going to make them secure again because God himself is going to be their protector. He says, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands... So he brings them to where they should be. He brings them out of the foreign nations and God himself becomes their shepherd. He brings his lost sheep home. And through them, he says, have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. So through his dealing with Israel, God has shown himself to the world. He's put himself on display. Then it says, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations. So God shows them that he deals with sin. Does God deal with sin? Yeah, God deals with sin. He judges sin. And it says, then assembled them into their own land. He deals with sin, but then he also forgives. Amen? Are you glad for that? Are you thankful for that? God deals with our sin, but he also forgives us. And I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. He rescues us. And I will not hide my face anymore from them. He restores us into fellowship with himself. God says, I will not hide my face anymore from them. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. God has told his people, listen, I have judged you. I have judged your sin. I have dealt with you, but I am not done with you. I have dealt with your sin, but I am not done with you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to pull you back home. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. I am going to restore our fellowship with each other. Is that not what the Lord has done for us? Our sin is judged We are guilty, Scripture tells us. Romans says that we have all sinned, right? And fallen short of the glory of God. And it tells us the wages of the pay we get for our sin is separation from God. It is is destruction. But Scripture also tells us that we have a Savior who has rescued us, that he has gone to the cross on our behalf. He has paid the penalty of our sin. God has rescued us and it is his heart, his desire to restore us into fellowship with himself, just like with Israel, just like with Israel. He says, I want to be in relationship with you. You are guilty, but I've forgiven you, but it doesn't stop there. What I want is for you to be in relationship with me. I want to breathe my spirit into you that you might have new life, that you might walk in righteousness, that you might live in unbroken fellowship with me. That is what God wants for Israel and that is what God wants for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this this passage of scripture. I thank you for your word God, I pray that we would be people who would not only understand that what you desire is not just that we would be forgiven, but that we would be transformed, that we would be set free from sin, that we would would receive your Holy Spirit, that we might have new life, that we might have unbroken fellowship with you, God, that your face would no longer be hidden. But Lord, that we might see your face. Not only on that day, but Lord, on every day as we come to you. Father, may we we experience that this morning. May we come face to face with you. Maybe some for the first time surrendering their hearts, surrendering themselves to you, asking you to breathe that new life into them. But all of us, Lord, may we be refreshed by your Holy Spirit. May we we be drawn into your presence. May we be transformed and walk in new life. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.